Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 260. And for this episode, I drove to New Rochelle, New York. New Rochelle is just north of the Bronx in Westchester County, so not terribly far from where I am in Brooklyn. And I met with Wildman Steve Brill. And I was fortunate enough, as I am often, to meet Steve at his home, so thank you so much for having me there. But Wildman Steve Brill is a naturalist and environmentalist. He is a forager and he has an incredible wealth of knowledge and information about edible plants and edible plants here in New York City. He runs tours in a few different locations, but probably he's most notable for running his foraging tours through Central Park. It's really fascinating stuff. He's a really interesting guy. Quirky, eccentric, funny, one of a kind. So in this episode, there's some extra stuff going on, like Steve getting up and going and getting me some food, or his bird flying around, and we, we kind of break the fourth wall a bit. But I kept all that in there. I think you're probably used to this by now, but I want the listener to feel as if they're there. You know, I'm recording from the road all the time. You've probably noticed I don't do any episodes remotely anymore. So my studio is wherever I am. If it's a car, a basement, inside of a road, a park, or in this case, in Steve's living room. And so I'm keeping all that in there. You'll hear some bird chirping. You'll hear me kind of fill dead space a couple times while uh, Steve gets up and, and gets me some, some treats that he made. And I think all that stuff's pretty cool. So if you're interested in learning more about environmentalism or learning more about foraging, he has so much stuff on his website, links to other people, links to articles, information about his own personal history. He has an app that you can use to help you identify uh, edible plants. And um, I'll link to all that, as always, in the show notes for this episode. So whatever player you're listening to this in, you'll see a direct link to, to his website. His Instagram is really cool, too. Uh, we've referenced a lot of images and a lot of plants that Steve has drawn. So in his house, there's just these pictures everywhere. And he, I mean, they look straight out of... I don't know, a textbook or something. Like he, he drew these incredible photos. Um, but if you're interested in what anything looks like, like we talked about a puffball, which I thought was really cool, you can go to his Instagram and you can see pictures of these things. Or maybe this is one of those episodes where you want to keep like a browser handy while you're listening and you can look up some of these things uh, as you hear the names for them. So yeah. Super cool episode. I'm excited to have you listen to this. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Wildman Steve Brill. Well, thank you so much for having me. Sure, uh, it's a pleasure. Oh, p- p- for me, man. It's 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 an honor and a pleasure. I had heard about you, so I had reached out to you. Uh maybe a couple months back. But then I had read Dr. Bill Schindler's book. Uh, if you're familiar with him at all. No, no. Okay. What did he write about? So he 
lives in the eastern shore of Maryland where my dad lives. Mm-hmm. And you've met so many people, I'm assuming, through your tours. I believe he did one of your tours once a while back. So he talks a lot about like ancestral eating. Um, and so he must have taken one of your foraging tours and he cited you in the book. Oh, nice. And I was like, that's a really strong cosine. Uh, so I've got to go talk to the wild yeah, man myself. Every time I learn a new plant, I forget a person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you've, I'm assuming then through the years, you must have met a lot of really interesting people doing your tours. Oh, yeah. Oh, hold on one sec. Sure. Ah, uh, no worries. How do you like the trail mix? You know what? Let me try it. It's a seaweed that is not sold. Uh, this trail mix you're trying is a seaweed that's not sold commercially because the commercial seaweeds all derive from Japanese culture, and this is uh, an East Coast Atlantic seaweed. So no one knows about it, but it's delicious. So is it kelp? No, it's rockweed. Rockweed. Yeah, I love rockweed, even though I'm a jazz fan. <laughs> Where do you harvest it from? A few blocks away. It's really? all over, all year, low tide, rocky shores all over the Atlantic coast. It used to be used to treat goiter back in the day. And if the goiter was caused by iodine deficiency, then it would work. The uh. goiter was caused by thyroid cancer and did no good. Um, and it also used to be used before artificial fertilizers to bring uh, minerals into the soil. Mm. But that's all forgotten. There's actually a group out of Montauk, I think, that's trying to bring that back and using like kelp-based fertilizers. It's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, I've heard of that. And there's the main seaweed company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've actually uh, I've reached out to them before. I'd like to actually go visit them up in Maine. But in the sea, any time you go to a rocky shore, low tide, even in the middle of the winter, if you don't break your neck on the ice, um, you're going to uh, find seaweeds. Wow. And this is the most common one. He's going to try to eat some of this. Is that okay? No. No. no okay. not for him. You can't eat this. I'm going to put this over here and you can hang out on my hand. People can't see this, but you're hanging out with us. Yeah, so that's Wisteria the parakeet. You're from Queens originally? Yeah. Whereabouts? Um, Kew Gardens. Oh, okay. I love Kew Gardens. Um, so, I also lived in Forest Hills and Briarwood and in Hillcrest. Okay. Yeah, I've got some friends over in Forest Hills. Uh, maybe this is just me, but I feel uh, living in the city, especially in the winter when it's pretty gray, I feel detached from nature. Uh, I grew up in the, in the suburbs. Uh, just through traveling a lot, I'm fortunate enough to get out. Uh, were you interested in the outdoors and in plants at an early age? I like nature. It was one of my interests. And my mother showed me raspberries and blueberries and blackberries when I was young. And that always stuck with me. But it wasn't until I was an adult that I got into foraging. Mm. Um, I wanted to be a doctor when I was a child, I could not, I got a, with a B average in high school and college, no way I could get into medical school. I switched to psychology in college, got a, a 
a, a degree that's not worth the paper that it's yeah. written on. <laughs> Uh, then I decided to pursue my hobby, which was chess, and I became a good chess player. Okay, and people can't see this, but you're pointing to a ton of chess trophies. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I even play the current. How? World. What are you I, doing? I met, I met Bobby Wisteria. That's not a female tarot. <laughs> That's my finger. That's a. You have to close your finger. Oh, so I see. He doesn't try to mate with them. Well. <laughs> Sorry, Wisteria. So you were okay, playing. So I played in tournaments. My best game, I beat a chess master once. Oh. I got to shake hands with Bobby Fischer. No way. Um, yeah, when I was 16, one of the greatest chess geniuses of all time. Wow, yeah. And recently, I actually got to play a game with a world champion, Magnus Carlsen. Yeah, yeah. I was playing really well. He was still winning, but he didn't win. I woke up. <laughs> oh, man. But you did meet Bobby Fischer. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and shook hands with him. Wow, that's very cool. My first tournament, I was 16. Someone from uh, the um, park, Forest Park, Woodhaven Boulevard, their chess tables. I went there to play, and one of the players uh, who I was friends with, an adult player, said, I'm going to play in a chess tournament. Why don't you come along? I decide as long as I'm going to come along, I might as well enter it. I love chess. I've just learned the moves a few months ago. I'm going to lose every game, mm. uh, but I'll get some experience. And uh, out of six games, one Friday night, uh, one Saturday morning, afternoon, and evening, and one Sunday morning and Sunday uh, afternoon. That's how the weekend tournaments went back then. I actually won one game against uh, another kid who was as inexperienced as I was. So, uh, and then I got better, but I never got to the level of uh, becoming becoming a chess master. Then I got into cooking, food, health, mm. and nutrition, and through that I got into foraging. And uh, this is my 40th year of leading foraging tours. Okay. Now, what I'm interested in is like you right now are like the authority in this area on this. Like you have vast knowledge. But no, I, I do have a competitor. Okay. Yeah, my 17-year-old yeah. daughter. She <laughs> <Okay>. co-leads <laughs> co a lot of my tours, bosses me around, finds all the plants and mushrooms before I do and steals all my jokes. Yeah. And then people say she's following my footsteps, which is another insult. She's much faster than me, so I usually have to follow in her footsteps. But 40 years ago, there's no internet. Um, the information is a lot harder to come by. Was there, did you have like a mentor or was there like specific uh, books or texts that were influential? Um, there were books that were influential in negative ways. They were written by... Um, authors who wouldn't know what a kitchen was if it fell on them. Mm. And they just used info from other authors. So some of the major plants were not there. And there, there were mistakes left and right. Or you'd see a picture. Um, okay, if you look behind you, yeah. next to the window, mm -hmm. uh, next to the curtain, second one down is a plant called field garlic. Okay. And yeah. that long uh, leaf is what you see most of the time. For um, a couple of weeks in the summer, 
the center of that picture are the little flowers. And because the field guide I was using uh, was by the same company that did a wildflower guide, they used the picture from the wildflower guide, which is this tiny flower that's there for um, uh, two or three weeks at the start of the summer. And the the picture at the left, uh, the plant gets uh, one to two feet tall, has skinny leaves, looks a little like a skinny scallion. Mm. That's what you're usually looking for. It wasn't even in the in the book. So I looked and looked and looked, field garlic, allium vineali, I could not find it. Then I did what I did this morning before uh, you got here. I went to the local Y and did my mile of laps in the pool. I am fin finished my laps, and there's this guy by the name of Chuck hanging on the side of the pool. Hey, Chuck, how are you doing? Good, Steve. What are you up to? Well, Chuck, you know I like to cook. I'm trying to learn about edible wild plants. And Chuck says, oh, I know one. It's called field garlic. Chuck, where is it? <laughs> tell me, tell. I almost drowned poor Chuck. But in his dying breath, he spurted out that it was growing in Alley Pond Park, oh, also yeah. in Queens, um, by the backstop of the baseball diamond near the Grand Central Parkway. So the next day, I did what I uh, am going to be doing tomorrow. I did my hour on the bicycle and I bicycled out there and there was the field garlic. And I was really happy. I put a lot in my bag, stuck it into my pannier and started bicycling home. And then I started seeing more field garlic and still more field garlic. And when I got to my apartment building in Briarwood, um, it was right in front of the service entrance of my building. I'd been confusing it with grass. And of course, without a picture and with no internet, uh, that's how I learned the plant. Huh. And it's a wonderful plant. You use it like uh, onions and garlic. has a long growing season. You use the leaves, the bulbs, um, and the seeds. Just have to be careful when you're collecting the seeds not to let them fall on the ground, especially if you're Catholic, you're not supposed to spill your seeds. Um, <laughs> And it's quite delicious. It also prevents the COVID virus. Once you eat it, your breath is so bad, no one will come close enough to infect you. Oh, it, it does have a poisonous lookalike called uh, Star of Bethlehem. And if you look back at the wall behind you, uh, uh, two down from the field garlic is the Star of Bethlehem. Mm. And yeah, that's especially, especially poisonous to Jewish people. Oh no! <laughs> well, and that, it has it has the field garlic has round leaves. Star of Bethlehem has flat leaves, and there's a stripe down the middle of the leaf, and it has no odor. Mm. And uh, despite that, we did have one death due to that plant on a tour. It was in Prospect Park. I told everyone we're picking field garlic. Don't pick Star of Bethlehem. Um, it has no odor. It has flat leaves. Five minutes later, someone is putting the poisonous plant in her bag. I stopped her before she could eat any, but it was too late. She still succumbed. She died of embarrassment. Oh, God. <laughs> it's really hard to follow your lead if this is going to be real or not. Um, okay, good. I'm glad nobody died on one of your tours. But I mean that. So that's how I that's how I started. I had awful books. Mm. I did lots of experimentation in the kitchen, and uh, slowly 
and surely I learned the plants and I'm still learning more, more species to this day. I just finished a 30, I'm finishing a 32 hour um, video course on foraging. And I'm sure as soon as I finish it, I'll find another plant that I've never, uh, never seen uh, or identified before. Because there's identifying it, but then there's also knowing which plants, uh, I guess, in essence, have to be transformed, like an acorn. Yeah, yeah there's a plant called pokeweed, uh, that one over there. Mm. Um, the root will kill you. Uh, the only part you eat is the shoot. That's the one toward the bottom, Whoa. just the leaves coming out. And you have to boil it in a couple of changes of water. It has a, um, a toxin that causes vomiting and diarrhea. And if you don't go to the hospital, you could die of dehydration. Um, but it is incredibly tasty and the poison is water soluble. So you... Uh, uh, stick it in a pot, pour boiling water over it, boil a minute, throw out the water, boil it a second minute, throw out the water, and then boil it uh, for a total of uh, 20 minutes. You're completely safe. It's delicious. And it is loaded with vitamin A, which is not water-soluble. Vitamin A is fat-soluble. Right. And back in the day... Um, when people had no fresh greens during the winter or during the spring, because uh, if you have a farm, your first harvest is in the summer, you're planting in the spring, you can get vitamin A deficiency. And that happened to the pioneers and to uh, enslaved people in the 19th century. And the Native Americans, didn't, no one knew what vitamin A was, but the Native Americans knew the symptoms of vitamin A deficiency. And they knew that uh, pokeweed would cure it. And they taught the enslaved people and the pioneers how to, uh, how to use pokeweed. And it's still sold in cans in the deep south. It's called poke salad, S-A-L-L-E-T, an old word for cooked green. And if you confuse that with salad, S-A-L-A-D... Uh, you can uh, you can die. Wow. I actually had a reporter from National Geographic uh, back in the 90s. He came on one of my public foraging tours. Then he came on a tour that I uh, did with kids. And then he came to my home um, for a dinner and I served him pokeweed. Wild man, this is good. This is so good. I love this. Can I have some more? What, what, what's it called? His name was Joel. Oh, Joel, that's pokeweed. By the way, Joel, did you happen to know that if you pick pokeweed at the wrong time of the year, if you use the wrong part of the plant, or even if you don't cook it the right way, you could get very sick or even die? <laughs> Joel <laughs> lost his appetite completely. He turned as green as the pokeweed. And he went home soon thereafter. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. But the next morning, a strange thing happened that surprised him completely. He woke up. I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. He was so happy to be alive. He wrote a wonderful article about me in National Geographic magazine, May 1993. And Joel still lives on to this very day. Well, that's good. That would have put a damper on your career a bit. Yes, yes. So that's that's how I started, uh, one plant at a time, using every uh, book I could to identify it, and sometimes waiting a damn long time before I 
was absolutely certain that I knew what I was doing before I'd eat anything. Yeah. Did you ever make a mistake yourself? And Yeah, I grew up on junk food. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fair enough. No, I've been, I've been very cautious. I mean, there's one plant called the daylily, and um, I found the uh, shoots of the daylily, which look like a lot of other, uh, a lot of other plants, and uh, remembered where it was, and uh, certainly did not eat it, and uh, this was in um, in the summer, and it wasn't the shoots; it was the dead uh, the dead plant. And I thought it was daylily, no longer really uh, really edible. And then I waited till the following spring, when the shoots appeared. Ah, I see. I yeah. still wasn't uh, wasn't sure. So Steve and, pulled up a picture for me. That's and, what we're looking at. Yeah. And then I found it in the summer with the flowers, and then I knew it was edible. I see. And uh, the flowers are edible, uh, but then I had to wait till the following spring to eat the shoot. So okay. it was almost two-year process. The shoots taste a little like uh, green peas and onions. Interesting. Lilies are related to onions, so they have a sharp flavor and also string bean flavor. Really, really good. And uh, the flower is uh, spicy and sweet, and the uh, little tubers taste like turnips. It's a bit of a job to clean those off and roast them. They're like mini potatoes, but I wouldn't turn up my nose to them. <laughs> oh, God. And um, the flower is also used in traditional Chinese medicine. Um, I had a party once. And there was a very attractive Chinese woman who came to the party. And um, she had grown up in China under the reign of Mao Zedong. And uh, it's very, uh, very unpleasant living under the rule of a tyrant. Just ask anyone who's lived under the reign of Donald Trump. Um, so her main goal was to get out of China. I mean, uh, um, you can, uh, if uh, it was ruled by Mao, by Mao, he was all powerful except he had one weakness. He couldn't sleep. He'd wake up at two in the morning and, of course, being Mao, he'd write a speech. And, of course, being Mao, the speech would be about communism. And then at three in the morning, loudspeakers all over the country would blare, come out and listen to the glorious uh, Chairman Mao's speech. And uh, if you're a little kid and you say, Mommy, I'm scared. There's a thunderstorm. I don't want to go out. Uh, Mommy would call the secret police and you're off to a re-education center for the rest of your uh, childhood. So mm -hmm. she wanted to get out of China. And um, she was smart. She grew up, she became a medical doctor. She also studied all of the traditional Chinese herbal uh, herbalism. And when relations between uh, the East and the West thawed during the Nixon administration, uh, being very attractive uh, and a little bit of a vamp, she made friends with Westerners and got to be taken out of China and moved to Boston, but she took something with her, post-traumatic stress disorder. 
So any sound or anything unusual, suddenly you panic, you feel like the secret police are closing in after you. And she made tea with a daylily flower, which is called the flower of forgetfulness in China. And after a couple of months, she got rid of this. And this is an anecdote, but what you need to do is get a bunch of people with post-traumatic stress disorder, give half of them daylily tea and half of them placebo, and you don't know which is which until the code is uh, revealed at the end of the experiment and see whether or not it works. And it's not on the internet anywhere. I only know this from uh, being told by the, uh, by the Chinese woman. So um, uh, it's one that needs to be researched. Maybe it has a substance that affects the central nervous system. Mm. Uh, you need to do the science. And of course, that will be done if they can find something that can be patented and make money. Right, and they sell it to you, of course. Yeah. yeah. It, the the East-West thing, though, I think is a little bit interesting when talking about the natural world because um, we have this detachment from nature in the West that, like, if you look at religious texts, right, in the East, a lot of religions are focused on nature versus, like, I, I don't know the exact quote, but there's something in Genesis about how, like, man is separate from nature and must even, like, dominate over nature. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if that is sort of our root in seeing ourselves as not part of nature. Yeah, drain the swamps, uh, cut down the forest, all, all of that stuff, and we're paying for it. Yeah. But uh, fortunately, more and more people are becoming more attuned to nature. Now, people that have been on, started on my tours back in the 90s when they were kids that have founded environmental organizations or doing ecotourism, very proud of these people. And I'm glad I got to uh, uh, play a role in their development in that direction. Why were you arrested for this? I'm very I curious. I ate a dandelion. And so, okay, so what's the charge for eating a dandelion? Criminal mischief for removing vegetation from the park. There is a park regulation and uh, people that are into uh, bureaucracy and the tribe of bureaucrats, the rules are much more important than people or environmental education. So uh, Parks Commissioner Henry Stern put two undercover agents on my tour of Central Park, March 29th, 1986. It was a man and a woman. They said they were married. They never held hands or kissed, so I figured they'd been married a long time. <laughs> the man had a camera. I'd hold up the specimens. Only I was the specimen. Um, at the end of the tour, um, I ate a dandelion. He ducked behind a tree, took out his secret walkie-talkie. All right, there he is on 81st Street. Go get him. Every park ranger in Central Park popped out from behind the bushes. They surrounded me in case I was going to climb up a tree, put me in handcuffs lest I bopped them on the head with a dandelion. They searched me. I don't know if they were looking for weeds or weed, but they hauled me off to the police station in Central Park in handcuffs. They took mug shots. They took fingerprints. Um, they searched my backpack and... Um, issued me a desk appearance ticket that said I had to go to court and can face up to a year in jail if convicted. The charge was removing vegetation from the park because I ate the dandelion. Uh, and then they made a very bad mistake. They let me go. I used to play in chess tournaments. 
um, in a chess tournament, if your opponent makes a mistake, you need to figure out why it's a mistake and what to do about it. One mistake gets, well, you write down the move, gets a question mark after it. Two mistakes get two question marks after it. Do you know what move they made that gets three question marks after it? I'm not sure. They could have arrested me in any park in the city, not Central Park. That was so dumb. So, of course, you take advantage of your opponent's mistake. There were telephones then. I called up every TV station, every newspaper, every wire service um, the next day on the, and told them what happened. The next day, I went to the newsstand to see if I had had any results. Um, five cops stopped me. What do you want? I said, I haven't uh, eaten a single dandelion. I haven't even had breakfast yet. One of the cops says, we don't care. We want your autograph. Wow. Turned out I was in front pages of newspapers in the city, page one of the Chicago Sun-Times, page two of the New York Daily News. I get home, the phone starts ringing, CBS Evening News, Dan Rather wants you in Central Park right away. I get there, Channel 2 and Channel 4 News are waiting online behind them. And um, uh, so, uh, I'm, in, I'm in absolutely everything. Um, that that's that's when I the the cop stopped me for my autograph after after I got in all the uh, all the press. They still took me to court, so I served Wild Man's Five Borrow Salad on the steps of the Manhattan Criminal Courthouse to reporters and passersby in cent on Central uh, Street in Manhattan, and the press ate it up. Yeah, that's brilliant. After which, the uh, if you look in the hallway, you can see some of the articles mm. on the wall and my fingerprints. They got, they gave me back my fingerprints. Um, so suddenly, uh, even the BBC covered it in, in in London. The coal miner strike is in its fifth week at New York City. They arrested the wild man of Central Park for eating a dandelion. So it went international. And then everyone watched TV and read the newspapers. That was the media back then. Hard to imagine now. But uh, the parks commissioner, Henry Stern, was forced to turn over New Leaf. He negotiated when he dropped the charges and hired me to lead foraging tours uh, for the Parks Department. And I worked with him for the next four years and left when the administration changed. Prior to that, did it feel like foraging was like a countercultural thing to do? Oh, definitely. Mm. I mean, they were after me for years, the, the Parks people. Really? Yes, yes. Um, there was one time I was in Alley Pond Park, the big lawn with ball fields on it. I was on one side. The park rangers in their park ranger car were on the other side. And in between were tons of very, very delicious mushrooms. So I got everything ready, my bicycle, my panniers, my backpack, and I took a bag and grabbed the mushrooms all within about one minute. They had their binoculars. 
They, they had their binoculars and they sped over in their, in their park ranger car and I darted off into the trails in the woods on my trail bike. And I think they're still in there looking for me to this day. <laughs> oh, no. Now, I grew up uh, with a lawn in the suburbs and we would pick up these like dandelion seeds and you could make a wish or you would just blow them and they'd scatter everywhere. Yeah, but your wish will always come true, but only if you wish for more dandelions. Exactly, because then they're everywhere. Now, in more recent times where there's been, I don't know if it's like a return to older ingredients or maybe more of a focus on ingredients, I can go places and find like deep fried dandelion blossom. So when, you, when you're saying like you ate a dandelion, is that that thing that was growing in my yard? Yes. Wow. And we're looking at it here on the screen. Yeah, yeah exactly. Those are, yeah. My, those are my paintings. And they're, they're so abundant. So the fact that they would say that you were like destroying or desecrating. They wanted to stop me. Okay. They're making an example. Uh, the the um, main motivation of bureaucrats is don't get sued. They were afraid that if I foraged, someone uh, would, and, and it was allowed, someone would pretend to have poisoned themselves foraging and sue the city. So it was basically a bureaucratic self-interest uh, taken to a level of total paranoia. In 40 years of doing this, no one connected with me in any way has ever been sued. Mm. So it was, it was just a paranoid fantasy, but why take a chance if there's one in a million chance of getting sued by uh, allowing this guy to forage, uh, let's go after him. Now, I work in a school, or I've worked in schools for 11 years now. Uh, which, which school are you with? Uh, I'll tell you off, yeah. Okay. Um, you've worked with tons of teenagers and school kids over the years. Kids are so obsessed with their phones right now. They want to look at TikTok all day. How do you handle or like what is your response to, hey, why would I need to have this knowledge? I can just go to the store and I could I could pull stuff off of the vegetable rack. I could put something off the I never I never get that. Really? Yeah, it's a new world for them. It's interesting. It's oh. colorful. And of course, I joke around with the kids, which is a big relief from the classroom. Yeah. So I get uh, wonderful responses and always, uh, always have. Oh, okay. That's wonderful. Yeah. And uh, if you want, you can interview my daughter. Uh, she's 17. She's been co-leading my tours since she was nine. By the time she was nine, she'd seen every plant in every stage hundreds of times. And it, of course, heard all my stories and explanations. So uh, she's been uh, co-leading tours in the last few years. She's been doing tours of her own. Very cool. And she's also an avid birder. Oh, yeah. And now she's getting into chess, too. I really enjoy uh, seeing the pictures that you have online. Uh, and everyone listening, I'll link to Instagram and everything like that. Uh, she does the Instagram. Instagram. Okay, cool. Um, you were holding something, uh, looks kind of alien. It's called a puffball. What is a puffball? A puffball is a type of mushroom. Okay. And he's pointing to a picture that he's drawn of one. And looks like the moon. Yeah. 
A lot of young people are environmentalists. They see what's going on with the earth and what's going to happen in later years. So the puffball is a type of a mushroom. There's a fungus that uh, lives in the uh, in the ground or on rotting uh, tree, depending on the species. It has spores inside. And when it matures, the spores uh, come out, just a raindrop, uh, thousands or millions of spores will come out from it. And um, there's one called the giant puffball. It's as large as a beach ball. And that has 30 trillion spores. And if every spore germinated into a giant puffball, and a few generations, the entire mass of the solar system would be giant puffball. But fortunately for us, each spore has only one out of 30 trillion chance of landing in the right place and becoming a new giant puffball. So I've done a lot of experimentation with using uh, wild plants and mushrooms for food and making things healthy. So I have a database with thousands of recipes. You just tasted one. I can give you another one later. And um, there are ways of using these things that the uh, restaurant chefs uh, have not come up with. So the giant puffball has a really nice mushroom flavor, but the texture is very soft. So the thing you do with that is you use it in tofu recipes. It's like tofu in its texture, but it has a thousand times the flavor. So any tofu recipe where you're going to use puffball, it is absolutely incredible. And these are renewable. Once you pick the mushroom, right. uh, thousands or millions of spores already off in the air. There are some places where commercial pickers that just pick the forest clean have done have done damage. But for normal people picking mushrooms that they uh, that they find, um, there's no harm whatsoever to the environment. And of course, uh, same thing with the plants. You pick a small fraction where, where they are abundant. So all the things we've been picking for 40 years, unless the places have been landscaped, are still there 40 years later. Mm. And there's no... I mean, is there still an issue with, like, uh, anyone trying to prevent people from foraging? Uh, the regulation is still there, but uh. they have not made... And I, I wish they'd arrest me again. I could use more public... Now with the internet, <laughs> that would be great. But unfortunately, they, they don't come after me. Although there, there are some exceptions. There is a species that used to be very common that's now rare. Um, that picture over there is the blackberry. Yeah. And uh, when I first started, there were tons and tons of blackberries, but now you never see them anymore. Yeah, too much competition from the iPhone. Mm. I understand. <laughs> uh, is that that? So that's a blackberry, like you'd, you'd see in a grocery, like a regular berry. Yeah, except they're wild, so they're smaller. Oh, okay. And they have more seeds, and they have way more flavor. Commercially, it pays to have stuff bigger. Because it weighs more, you get more money for it. And the flavor is way, way down. The commercial, uh, the wild blackberries are just way, way tastier. And anyone who tries any of these things that are also commercially available, um, you'll see how much better the wild ones taste. Well, yeah, I mean, regionally too, it, you know, going back to the time before grocery stores, you would eat things in season when they were available. Yeah. 
they wouldn't be shipped to you from Florida or from Belize or something. (laughs) Um, Yeah, big thing was when bananas first came in from, from South America that people wouldn't even want them in their house because they looked obscene. Ah. And the big hit in 19, I think 1923, the mega music hit was, yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. Brillophone? That's the Brillophone. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, that's Henry Brill, my dad, who taught it to me. Your dad immigrated from Germany? Yeah. 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 He managed to escape uh, Jewish uh, during the Holocaust. He um, uh, managed to get a visitor's visa to Canada and then illegally snuck across the border. Um, to New York, taught My himself English, reading newspapers. It's the one thing I like about Trump. He wasn't around then. <laughs> he would have sent my dad back to yeah. back to Hitler. That's for sure. Um, his mom didn't make it, oh. but his brother and sister uh, uh, survived. One uh, hiding out in France, and the other managed to get to Israel. And um, wow. he was into business, but his his. Uh, Avocation was entertainment. Um, even with the Nazis coming to power, he managed to win the amateur dancing uh, championship of uh, Berlin uh, when ballroom dancing was all the all the things. So you see old movies of Fred Astaire. Um, my dad was was to me was better dancer. Wow. He was really good. And his prize was he got to dance with one of the biggest movie stars of the era, Marlena Dietrich. Wow. So when he wasn't doing business, um, he had all kinds of entertainment, sang, dance. And before movies, if you were an entertainer, you did everything. You had to sing, you had to dance, you had to tell jokes because, you know, if you were especially professional, but the whole entertainment business was oriented that way. Even amateurs, you did everything. So if you're a professional and there's a job that has dancing, you take that job or you don't eat. So uh, entertainment was much less specialized in the early 20th century. So... uh, he could balance a cane on his foot and flip it up and catch it on the bridge of his nose. So that must be where you get your artistic creativity from. Well, the comedy. Yeah. He, was, he was very funny. Yeah, all around us, I mean, people can't see this, but every time that we're referencing a plant and, and it's pointed out to me, these drawings are all done by you and they're really and beautiful. And too. Yeah. The color ones are paint called paintings. Now... People don't just necessarily have to refer to text. You created an app, right, where people yeah, can identify plants? Yeah, Wild plants. Edibles Forage. And uh, you can, uh, uh, has all the information on every single plant. And you could use that along with an app that lets you photograph the plant um, to uh, make sure of your identification. And it has all the different seasons and everything I know about the plants, from the mythology to the uh, to the bad jokes, and 
illustrations and photos. The illustrations show you what the plants look like in their ideal forms. Mm. Um, the identifying characteristics are very clear and distinct. And then when you have the photos, you see it in all its messiness in real life. So the two together are better than uh, either apart. Mm. Uh, artwork plus um, photos. And if you enjoy the artwork, then you remember the stuff better. The same with the stories. All non-technological societies that had to depend on memory because they had no writing, they would incorporate their information, uh, whether it's Native Americans or uh, um, First Nations people in Australia with all the stories that makes it easier to remember. And sometimes music and poetry would enter there too. And um, they kept the knowledge and it would be passed down through the generations. The stories would have to be word for word because otherwise you play a game of intergenerational telephone and what used to be poisonous 200 years ago, suddenly the story has changed and it's not so poisonous and someone mm. is going to die. So I try to incorporate stories, art and music. I play jazz on the Brillophone with the plants and it makes it... Uh, enjoyable and the rewardingness makes it easier to remember. If you just throw one fact after another uh, into your brain, um, it eventually gets too jumbled to remember. I think that's called school. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Have you noticed like since the time of forging being like countercultural to now, have you noticed it increasing in popularity or I guess becoming like renormalized into society? Yeah, it's still a very fraction of people that yeah. uh, like go to sports games and things, but it's uh, it's much bigger. I mean, I had one tour back in 2014, for no reason, 100 people signed up. It's the only oh. time I ever turned people away. It was Sunken Meadow Park oh, yeah. uh, on Long Island, uh, along the Long Island Sound. And... Um, no reason at all. Uh, and now we still do have tours with 60, 70, 80 people, but nothing like that. And, of course, I told everyone on the tour, please don't go into the administration office adjacent to where we meet and announce that we're doing a foraging tour. So sure enough, someone goes into the administration office. We're doing a foraging tour with wild man Steve Brill. So here I am, the biggest tour in my lifetime. My then 10-year-old daughter standing next to me to um, co-lead the tour. And a big, burly ranger comes stalking out of the administration office, plants himself an inch in front of my face, and announces... I want to buy one of your books. <laughs> I made a book sale, but it took five years off my life. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you can take a look at my books later. I have five books. Uh, get them from me. Otherwise, Jeff Bezos gets to take another trip into space at my expense. And I sign them. And those are on your website? Yeah. Now, I've had, I've had a lot of people on, you know, I've, I've traveled many places and I've had a lot of people talk about food. It's like intricately tied to traveling. Uh, of late, I've had a lot of people who have talked about like meat-based diets and I want to try to give as balanced as a take over time as possible. Can you just explain why you prescribe to a vegan-based diet? 
Okay. Um, there is pretty good strong association with a high-fat, low-fiber diet, uh, cancer, and heart disease. And anecdotally, my mother died of cancer at the age of 56. Her mother died of cancer at 60. Um, my father, brother, his brother, and his sister all died early mid-60s of heart disease. I'm 72. I just did a mile in the pool in 44 minutes, and that's not anywhere near my, uh, my fastest speed. Uh, so that's anecdotal. But I think the uh, science does uphold that a high-fiber, plant-based uh, diet, grains, legumes, uh, vegetables, fruits, berries, uh, gives you tons of... Um, tons of nutrients and uh, you get complete protein with uh, whole grains and uh, legumes and seeds there. So it seems to be working really, really well with me. Uh, the only malady I have, which uh, um, there's no hope, uh, is a severe case of CCD. Compulsive cooking disorder. Mm. <laughs> I'm always in the kitchen. <laughs> That's a good one to have. Yeah. No, I, I I have other work to do. I can't spend <laughs> half my life in the kitchen. So I keep being drawn into doing more and more uh, experiments, like that trail mix you just tried with the seaweed. I'll I'll end with with this one. Um, maybe it seems. Too idealistic or? Oh, wait, wait. The, the complete the answer to your last yeah. question. I'm also a big animal lover. I do not like the way animals are treated um, in, in factory farms. Mm. And also being a vegan leaves a much lighter environmental footprint. So it's for the three reasons, uh, health, uh, humane reasons, and environmental reasons. And again, I really can't complain. I'm, I wake up every morning. I'm alive. I'm healthy. I'm fit. I'm productive. Mm. So um, what works for one person doesn't work for everyone, but that certainly works for me. And I do believe I'm, I'm a, I've been a lifelong science nerd, and I do believe the science uh, upholds this. I don't know if it's too idealistic or like utopian of an idea, but... To me, it seems possible that urban centers could have something like placards put up that would say, like, this is a location that has these types of uh, edible, nutritious plants and you can eat them. Or maybe... Well, all locations have this. I mean, it's the, the, uh, in the middle of the winter, there's still snow on the ground. I could take you eyes outside right now and show you some stuff. Exactly. and and Or even like... To a point where cities can have like there's just apple trees where the apples are ripe for their for the. Oh, plucking. there's wild apples in every park. Okay, so this is and sort the birds, of birds. The birds spread the the birds spread the seeds. They're uglier than the commercial apples, and way way tastier. And if you like to cook, you can make wonderful recipes with them because they are so tart. Uh, unlike commercial mm. apples, um, you cook them with something that's not tart, like pear juice. So I, I don't use refined sweeteners. I tend to use uh, stevia as a sweetener, sometimes vegetable glycerin, another natural sweetener. I will throw raisins and dates into, uh, into stuff. And when you're dealing with really sour wild fruits and you want to sweeten them with fruit juice, my... 
Uh, most common fruit juice is apple juice, but it has tartness in it. So if I'm cooking wild apples, I'll put in pear juice, which doesn't have the tartness. Ah. There's all these different uh, concepts that are obvious in hindsight that you can come up with if you're experimenting with natural ingredients and wild foods in the kitchen. And again, I've uh, done hundreds, hundreds. Of, here, let me show you one I made with sunflower seeds. Sure. I guess my, my thought as you go get that is, do we get to a place... And it, I guess really it's rooted in, in the idea that, I mean, there's still so many people who are like food and housing insecure. There's so many people on the trains who are asking for money, who need food. But if there well, is, yeah, we're moving around a lot here, people. So bear with us. If someone has no money, they are welcome to come on my tours free of charge. Oh, that's, that's amazing. The case. Here, try this. This is uh, These are curried sunflower seeds. Curried sunflower seeds. And these sunflowers are from New York? Well, these I had to buy. Uh, the only wild sunflowers I have found are in northern Connecticut. So these I are delicious. I bought these. It's delicious. Yes, my own curry powder. Well, it's a very bad recipe, actually. What? I came up with it. It was delicious. I wrote it on an index card, and the damn index card disappeared. For years, I tried to duplicate the curry powder. I could not ever get it, uh, get it right. Finally, my refrigerator died, and when the workman removed the old refrigerator to put in a new one, there was the card, battered but still legible, (laughs) underneath uh, where the refrigerator was. So I finally got my recipe back. Very cool. You're heading over for something else. No, I'm closing the refrigerator. Oh, I can give you something else. Oh, no, 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 you don't have to. All right, he's getting something else. Let's see. Yeah, I've got my stuff all over the place. What, all right, what's this? Okay, this is a sugar-free Whoa. chocolate truffle. Wow, okay. Looks like and mud. I'm going to try it. The base is almonds and dates, and the wild ingredient are the seeds of the Kentucky coffee tree. Do you get the coffee overtone in there? This is amazing. And uh, very helpful. Almonds, dates... Some, uh, some stevia, um, the coffee, and uh, again, going counter to culinary uh, cooking school type stuff, mm. I mixed chocolate with carob. The chefs think that carob is a health food, not uh, inferior substitute for chocolate. But what I found is that the two can complement each other. And if you throw in the coffee flavor from those coffee seeds, uh, and they're caffeine-free coffee. They're in Central Park and Prospect Park. I found them on the streets in Brooklyn and the streets in Manhattan. No way. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Well, this is amazing. You can can come up with all kinds of amazing health, uh, healthful foods. And... With thousands of recipes in my database and having done this for more than 40 years, I haven't even scratched the surface of the culinary, uh, culinary possibilities. So, you're uh, so I, I, I'm uh, 
always experimenting with this. And the video course I'm hopefully uh, will complete within the next few weeks has me doing tons and tons of recipes, um, often, uh, often with my daughter helping out. So, um, oh yeah, he's pulling up pictures of the Kentucky coffee tree. Yeah, this is my drawing. This is one big leaf divided into segments, subdivided into segments again. And there is the pod. It's in the legume family. Plants that are related have similar reproductive structures. And I'll actually show you the seeds. Okay, he's going to go get the seeds. Is it called Kentucky, Kentucky because it's not native to New York? Um, yeah, it's His answer is yes, south, from the deep south. On the streets and in the parks. Planted on the streets and in the parks. And Mm, interesting. So that was that tasted like just a delicious dessert. I'm trying to think of what it almost like a a chocolate cake. So Steve's in the kitchen right now and I'm hanging out, <laughs> I'm hanging out with the bird who's eating a leaf. And I've got all these snacks here, people. This is awesome. So I've got the seaweed trail mix. Um we've got next to that is the curried sunflower seeds. And then the truffle that you just heard me eat. Here, tell me what this smells like Man, when I open it. I'm so fortunate. Um, smell like coffee? It does smell like coffee a bit, yeah. So the Kentucky coffee tree was used by the pioneers in the Deep South when they couldn't get coffee. And it makes a caffeine-free coffee. Wow. And I tried that and spit it out. It tasted just like coffee, and I hate coffee. Oh, I love coffee. <laughs> then uh, no one has ever done this before. I decided to try using the seeds to flavor chocolate. And I mm. think the combination of chocolate, carob, the wild coffee, there's a little bit of vanilla bean and a dash of butterscotch extract in that truffle as well. Um, really, really works. You could throw that with like a scuba ice cream and that you could sell that in a high I make, restaurant. I make ice. I, I try, actually tried selling some of my recipes in the uh, um, early 80s and no one was interested in this stuff. What? Yeah. Oh, you should try again. So uh, eventually the idea is to get all of these like digitized and available as one package, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm working yeah. on. Um, everything I know about um, uh, three hundred um, looks like about three hundred twelve plants, um, including me doing recipes, um, folklore, mythology, anecdotes, comedy, mm. um, and uh, every bit of information. And compiled into something that is at this point, I'm still working on it, um, almost 32 hours long. So it's like a course. Every day you do uh, you do an hour. Wow. And um, after after a few months, you've been through everything. You make notes what you think you're going to find in your area, at what season, especially the season that you're uh, that you're in, at the at the time that you're looking at the course, and then go over those things again and see which ones you can find. And you may not find all of them, but you'll find a few, and then you'll find uh, more 
as you go along, which is what I've been doing for over 40 years. And I do not know every edible plant. I know most of them, mm. but I'm sure. And there's some things that have come up from other parts of the country for the first time that uh, I would not have missed because they're very conspicuous if they had been there in the past. Yeah. Well, for everything that you have available now, I'm going to link to all that. So whatever player people are listening to this in, they'll find a link to your social media, to the books, uh, to your contact information so that they can sign up for a tour. Uh, I think I've taken you past the time that we'd agreed upon because you have another interview in a little yeah, bit. at one and I want to have lunch. Yeah, of course. So this is, this is the recipe ah. for the Kentucky coffee trees. Almonds, dates, lecithin granules. Mm. That's another crazy health food thing. Uh, it has choline and inositol, but egg yolks have choline and inositol, and uh, that gives things, the vegan uh, recipes, the ah, flavor of, uh, of egg yolks. It gives it a little bit more creaminess. Um, two Kentucky coffee tree seeds, vanilla bean, butterscotch extract, coarse salt, uh, which gives it more crunchiness. Another thing I discovered, I don't know if any chefs do that, but where the salt isn't going to be dissolved, the coarse salt gives it crunchiness and you taste the salt more so you don't need to load up with high sodium in the recipes, which is also not good for you. Uh. Um, carob powder and cocoa powder and melted baker's chocolate. Well, it's delicious, man. It really is oh, really thank good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm always trying. I'm always trying to make more and more delicious recipes. And of course, I have a cookbook with 500 recipes. My app has recipes, and my uh, um, video course has recipes. Um, almost all different ones. I have so many of these. Awesome. Well, I'll link to all of that. Uh, and I want to say thank you. This has been a real honor. Okay, so thanks. Cheers. It's a pleasure. Last thing I have to say is... <laughs> That's all, folks. Hey, Voyagers. That is a wrap on episode 260 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you to Steve for having me at your home. I'm very fortunate that I get to meet so many really cool and interesting people. And often uh, they invite me into their home, a total stranger. I think that's very cool and very with the theme of travel. On the topic of travel, I've got some things planned for later in this year. So while... Recent episodes are coming to you from the road. Often it's not terribly far from where I'm located, but I'm going to be doing some more international travel this year and I'll be heading out hopefully to like the southwest of the country in uh, a month or so. So lots of cool stuff on the horizon. I'm excited about the rest of 2022. Excited to have you on board. So thank you for listening. And as always, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very soon.